Uh, I'm going to open with prayer and we will we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us all here safely today to study your word. I pray that what I say will be faithful to your word and uh, that your word will enrich our lives, transform us uh, as we continue to be made living sacrifices so that we can one day ascend to you finally uh, through Christ as a sweet, pleasing aroma. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I <clears throat> just don't like how bright it is, but we're going to, or uh, faint it is, I should say. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, as you all know with me, if I, um, I can talk and just keep talking about this kind of stuff, okay? So uh, what I'm going to do is try to stick to my script, okay? I'm trying something new. If you were in my sacraments class, we had to have some extra time added on just to get through that, um, which was fine. But and Nick told me, hey, you could, you could do a full year if you want on Leviticus, but I didn't want you all to have to suffer through a year of Leviticus. No, I'm just kidding. I love it. And I think you all, I hope you'll love it after we're finished. Um, but it makes sense for me to wrap this up uh, and get back to my other duties, writing the curriculum for the youth and things like that. So I... Um, that, that said, uh, I'm going to try to, um, for the next 12 weeks, so um, 12 weeks after this week, uh, try to get through some of the major themes of the book of Leviticus, and uh, we'll, we'll look at the different, the various sacrifices and stuff. And today, though, I'm going to just try to get us through the, um, uh, an introduction to the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, and I'm going to talk about the structure of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and... Um, how that structure forms something called a chiasm. How many of you have heard the, the term chiasm before? How many of you think you could explain what a chiasm is? Sweet. Awesome. I'll call on one of you then. <laughs> and and um, you messed up. You shouldn't have raised your hand. No. Um, I think you messed up, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe I did. Yeah. It might <laughs> That's right. It might take a while. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about that, the chiastic structure to the Pentateuch and how that's, um, that helps us focus in on sort of this central part, the central um, theme in this overall narrative of the Pentateuch. And I'm gonna tell, what I'm going to try to tell you today is that, that that central theme, that central part of the Pentateuch is Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Many of you have heard of this before, right? So uh, that's what we're going to try to uh, try to accomplish today. So, but I'm going to stick to my script as I do this. Uh, what I've just said is not sticking to my script, but you know, I'm going to get back on track. So, um, anyone have any questions before we get started? And can someone keep me accountable on time and tell me when it's like 11:40? Someone do that. Thank you. All right. So Leviticus is a book that I think many of us seem to merely tolerate. As when I say many of us, I mean Christians. Um, in fact, as I shared with one parishioner, I don't I don't see him here right now. Uh, maybe the, this response says something about that. But as I shared with him that I'd be teaching through Leviticus in the fall, his response was something like, "This is almost a verbatim quote. Oh wow, good luck getting people to read it." End quote. Um, and as I've studied Leviticus. I can sort of see why people joke that it's that one book, maybe along with the book of Numbers, that people sort of skip over, you know, you know kind of brush past in those yearly Bible reading plans. Um, I, I get it. 
because it's it's a it's a strange and hard book um, for lots of reasons. I think one of those reasons is that we just it's separate so separated from you know in terms of, of culture uh, and even when we think of worship, it's separated from the modern world. We're not people who are accustomed to seeing or hearing descriptions of animals being cut apart, blood being you know tossed about and so on, sprinkled on things, and um, I think maybe us more than um, people in other traditions, but uh, I could see someone reading Leviticus uh, and thinking, man, it's, it's a bit magical. You know, they do these things, this blood's, you know, sprinkled on stuff, and all of a sudden this pollution, whatever that is, when we talk about that, uh, well, we will talk about this, but this pollution that accrues to the tabernacle and to the people, it, it just disappears. It goes away. Um, I, so I could see, uh, but, you know, being, you know, um, sacramentalists, you know, that we are, uh, I could see, you know, us maybe not being as, finding that as strange as people from other traditions. But nonetheless, I think lots of people do find it strange. When we think about worship, I mean, we don't think about blood, really. I mean, I think, again, maybe we do a bit more because, you know, among Anglicans, we have people who... Uh, believe that they're, they're drinking the, the blood of Christ. Um, we, you know, uh, our, our Lutheran brothers and sisters, some of us have come from that tradition, believe that, uh, you know, the, the wine doesn't turn into, in its substance, the, the, the blood, but we believe that Christ's blood is present with it uh, somehow, above it, below it, beside it, inside of it, maybe, that sort of thing. So, um, again, maybe for those of us with a sacramental theology, this isn't that, it's still strange, it's maybe not as strange though, right? Um, but I also think people find Leviticus to be a weird book, and I'm thinking mostly of, you know, your internet atheists. Um, they think it's a weird book because the God of Leviticus seems mean, he seems angry, he seems, you know, bent on uh, destroying uh, domesticated animals like cows and goats and birds even, doves, you know. He wants to destroy them, have them cut in pieces, right? And again, their blood sprinkled about. Um, that kind of God seems standoffish. He seems like the kind of God who's more interested in keeping people out of his house of the tabernacle than bringing them into it. And my hope... Um, is that uh, we're going to, as we study this, see that that's not the right way to think about Leviticus. We don't need to say, see Leviticus in contrast to the quote-unquote winsome Jesus that we find in the New Testament. There's no conflict here. It's um, God, uh, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, right? And um, I hope that over the next 12 weeks, we'll sort of disabuse ourselves of thinking that way about Leviticus, if indeed we do think about it that way, even if, you know, unintentionally, or even if we didn't really know, because maybe we never really reflected on the book of Leviticus. Uh, there was certainly a time in my life where I didn't reflect on the book of Leviticus. Um, I skipped it. I didn't want to read it. I was like, this is too much. Um, the book of Galatians was also like that for me in college, and then I fell in love with it. But... Um, <coughs> I'm convinced, though, when we understand the broader narrative and theological context of Leviticus, along with its God-ordained typology, I wouldn't be Michael Neal if I wasn't talking about the typology of Scripture, 
Uh, I'm sort of obsessed with that. And I don't think that that typology just tells us about Jesus as, you know, the first century, you know, embodiment of God that's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father now and so on. I think that that typology also tells uh, the typology, uh, the, the, the messianic typology in the Old Testament tells us about the church just as much as it tells us about that Jesus who was incarnate in the first century and so on and ascended to heaven. And that's because the church is the body of Christ, the totus Christus. Um, I think, what was it, Augustine who maybe coined that phrase? I can't remember um, right now. But um, so I, we see images of the church throughout the Old Testament, and I think the same thing's true in Leviticus, and we'll, we'll touch on some of that. Um, but the thing is, I think that Leviticus reveals that ultimately God wasn't satisfied to leave his people exiled from Eden. Okay, he wanted to bring his people back into life-giving fellowship with him, and he's determined that that's going to happen in the Old Testament anyway, in terms of the tabernacle. This is going to happen at the tabernacle. And what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that the tabernacle reflects creation in Genesis. The tabernacle, as you've heard me probably tell you, how many of you, raise your hand if you've heard me in previous classes, um, stress emphatically that, that creation was a temple sanctuary. Raise your hand if you've heard, yes. Yeah, our youth are probably sick of hearing me say that. So, we're going to talk about that, that the tabernacle is God's invitation, really his forceful taking in, so to speak, of rebellious people into his presence. And I'm going to talk about that by talking about how the, um, uh, the uh, Garden of Eden was a temple sanctuary, but I'm going to add some new information. So I'm not going to just repeat the same sort of uh, uh, points of scripture that I've talked about before to help demonstrate that. I'm going to try to add some new information, okay, um, so that it's maybe not just uh, boring and repetitive for you. So we'll, we'll get there. Um, but one of the most fascinating things about Leviticus is that it's telling us how God is going to bring us back into Edenic, face-to-face, -face, unbroken fellowship with him again, okay? It tells us how. Not only that it's going to happen, but how it's going to happen, and I mean, it's not much of a spoiler alert to say it's going to involve, it's going to involve priests. Ultimately, it's going to involve the priest, Jesus, who is the great high priest over the house of God uh, in the order of Melchizedek. Um, he's the last Adam. He's the final, the greatest priest. Adam was the first. It's going to involve priests, and it's going to involve sacrifice, okay? It's going to involve, um, ultimately, the sacrifice of Jesus himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, now some people will say, okay, so it's about priests and sacrifice. Well, Leviticus then is just, Leviticus is this really interesting, um, the people who find it interesting and don't just write it off, they're like, it's this really interesting, like, uh, priestly instruction manual. And I think that's probably right as far as it goes, but it's a bit incomplete. Uh, I mean, a lot of, I don't mean that as a total criticism. A lot of what I'm going to say is going to be incomplete. You can't say everything, right? But, um, I do think just focusing on that misses something important, um, and so I'm going to try not to do that as we talk over the next 12 weeks. And um, it, it's uh, Leviticus is history, but it's not just history, like secular history. There is no such thing as secular history, mind you. It's uh, it's redemptive history. It's the history uh, of it's the story of what God has been doing since Genesis three to redeem His people. 
Leviticus is telling that story. It, it looks back. It deals with its current um, context and situation with the Israelites in the wilderness, and then it looks forward to the sacrifice of Christ. It spans Genesis to Revelation. Okay, so um, if we if we miss that redemptive historical aspect of Leviticus, we're going to be missing Leviticus. So we're going to try not to do that. Is this making sense so far? All right. Um, Leviticus reveals Jesus as the redeemer of that history I just mentioned, that redemptive history, um, and the redeemer of the world. And it helps us see that Jesus is the one true human. There's this sense that when we, when we finally are redeemed, atone, our sins are atoned for, um, we're brought back into fellowship with God, that's when we fully become human again, and not before then. Okay? We're something, in some sense, less than human prior to redemption. Okay? I think this is in part, why, in part why Adam and Eve were clothed as animals when they were sent out of God's presence. Okay? They wanted to follow a beast of the field, and so they were made to look like one. Um, if time permits, this is a big if, I really want to do this, but if time permits, I hope to say something about the sacrificial nature of our worship service, New Testament Christian Lord's Day worship, and what the book of Leviticus has to say about that. Um, and I'll just give you um, sort of a teaser here. The, uh, in Leviticus, there are a number of sacrifices, but three, uh, three major sacrifices. Um, you have your ascension offering or whole burnt offering that's mentioned in Leviticus 1. It opens with that. Then you have um, a discussion of sin and guilt offering. And then finally, you have a discussion of the peace offering. And the peace offering is the one where people are at peace with Yahweh and they're able to sit down and consume some of the meal. Okay? Um, they're introduced uh, in that order. But when it comes time to actually perform the sacrifices, the text suggests, it's, I think it's kind of hard to see sometimes, but it, it suggests, and it's not, it's not explicit, but it suggests that that order gets mixed up a bit. And what you have happening first is the sin offering uh, is given. Then you have the ascension offering once atonement has been made. Um, and then finally, um, you have the peace offering. Okay? It happens that way rather than ascension, sin, and peace. Um, it happens sin, ascension, and then peace. So I'm going to talk about that and hopefully say something about the structure of our liturgy. Um, and the BCP, um, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, I don't love the way it's laid out, um, our Eucharistic service. I think that a little tweak could be made, which the rubrics allow for, by the way. Um, that's just, I'm just one man with an opinion. Uh, so, and I realize, listen, I realize that um, I, I'm one man with an opinion and I'm very low man on whatever totem pole exists out in the world of, you know, people talking about these things, okay? So it's just my opinion. Um, but uh, nonetheless, the service, other than that, I, other than making this one little tweak, I think is, is spot on um, in terms of sort of uh, uh, reflecting well the progression of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Um, and there are Anglicans who agree with me and have made that, uh, the, that relevant tweak in their Eucharistic services. Um, so I just spoke with one not too long ago, actually, an Anglican priest. Nice guy. Anyway, <clears throat> Mark, if you're listening, 
Thanks for talking with me. Um, that was for the recording. Anyway. Um, all right. Well, I'll tell you later. I'm not going to do it now. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'll tell you later. Yeah, yeah. I'm just telling you I'm going to talk about that. So I was giving you a teaser. I'm sorry. Uh, but, but I'll tell you, I will... It has to do, I'll just tell you this, it has to do with uh, where the confession and absolution takes place. Do you remember in the, the Lutheran <laughs> church the confession and absolution was at the beginning? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. We just do it in a different place. That's all. So uh, Kevin and I were in the Lutheran church together for years, so that's why I'm saying, hey, do you remember the Lutheran liturgy? Um, all right. Um, now, another thing I might do, I don't have this particular lesson written, but I might throw some things in here about this, but Leviticus has some really interesting connections with Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, right? And um, uh, I think Leviticus uh, is this, the basis of this nice picture in Song of Solomon, where you have this bridegroom who has this house built uh, out of materials that um, the temple and the, the uh, tabernacle before it were um, built from. And the, the bride and his bridegroom enter into his chamber, you know, of cedar and so on. And uh, there's this fiery, passionate love that transforms them. There's this mutual consumption. And I think these are all images of a bride and groom. I think these are images, of, uh, uh, images from Leviticus, where God's, God brings his bride Israel... Right? And the Bible mixes metaphors all the time because I'm going to say in a minute that Israel is God's son too. But Israel is also God's bride. Brings his bride into his house, his tabernacle that he's constructed for them. And he consumes them with his fiery love. That's a, he eats them. That's the, the language used of the, what the fire does to the sacrifices on the altar, um, the ascension altar. And... Um, uh, he consumes his bride, and, sh and in consuming her, he transforms her into something that is a pleasing aroma. And just go back, spend, spend a little bit of time in Song of Songs when you get a chance, and just look at the prominence of this theme of fragrance that comes up in it. It's all over the place. I, I can't remember, I, I counted, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was significant, it, it, and there are papers about this. Um, but we might talk a little bit about that too trying to tie, and why? Why would we do that? Well, I hope that you try to tie Leviticus into other parts of Scripture, not just these early chapters of Genesis that we'll be doing in the next few weeks. Is it making sense? Okay. Um, all right, let's see. I'm sticking to script. How are we doing on time, Jacob? All right. So we're going to spend time in Genesis and Exodus the next few weeks. It'll probably take us four or so weeks to get through the pre-Leviticus stage of this class. Um, but what I want to do now is talk about the structure of the Pentateuch and say some things about that and um, how Leviticus pops out of that structure as an important, you know, sort of literary center of the Pentateuch, okay? So a number of scholars have noted that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, wasn't really haphazardly um, arranged, but instead shows signs that it was intentionally arranged so that the book of Leviticus stands as its literary center. And when I say literary center, what I mean is that it stands at the center of the story that the Pentateuch is telling, okay? That's what I mean by literary center. The major reason scholars believe this is because they see within it, uh, the Pentateuch that is, a literary device known as a chiasm, and they believe that the Pentateuch is structured chiastically. So here's, uh, let me show you this. Here's, um, 
oh, I forgot to do this, but it's fine. Here's one proposal for this chiastic structure. There are a lot of proposals for this. Many of them overlap, at least the ones I looked at. Can you all see this at all? Okay, very sorry. Hopefully next week we can, but let me just tell you, can you see this dark outline here? <laughs> so up here in this box, it says A, Genesis, and then prologue. So um, the letter A. And then here it says B, Exodus, arrival at Sinai, building of the tabernacle. The Israelites rebel and grumble against Yahweh and his uh, chosen leader, Moses, and Aaron too. Um, and then Yahweh uh, levels divine plagues against them. Okay. Um, and then you have the book of Leviticus that talks about the, the tabernacle that's established and the sacrificial cultists, right? Then you go to the book of Numbers, and the book of Numbers, uh, the ESV has a really interesting um, chart that I found that shows comparisons and, and contrasting verses uh, of, between Exodus and Numbers. It just shows the parallels between them, and these, some of those parallels are ones that, where they reflect one another and others are where they contrast with one another. Does that make sense? Um, and I've got a shot of that on the next slide, but you definitely won't be able to see that because it's all white, so I'm very sorry. Um, but then you go to Numbers, and what you have happening, and I'm going to read some things about this in just a minute that I've typed up, but this says B primed, or it's got a little uh, asterisk here, star, B primed Numbers, and it just repeats what I've got up here in the regular B, the B not primed um, box. Um, it just repeats that, because that's what you have happen in the book of Numbers. Numbers mirrors Exodus, okay? And then down here, I've got A primed, so in contrast to just regular old A not primed with Genesis, but A prime Deuteronomy and epilogue. Um, so let me just read uh, some of this and um, see where we get. So the basic idea here with this chiasm is that Genesis and Deuteronomy, they correspond to one another and that they include similar themes and narratives and often in reverse or some sort of inverse uh, way. Now, as a prologue, Genesis introduces the themes, characters, and symbols that one reads about and really uses to understand the rest of the Bible, especially the Pentateuch. And uh, here's, some, here's some interesting, you know, pieces from that. So Genesis opens with Adam, who is God's son. We know this from Luke's genealogy and lots of other reasons just in Genesis itself. But it opens with Adam, who is God's son, living in a restful, think of the Sabbath, um, garden land, the garden land of Eden, that was given to him by God. By contrast, and there's a reversal here, Deuteronomy opens with the nation of Israel, spoken of as God's son in the book of Exodus. So Deuteronomy opens with God's son again. But um, they're living outside of the promised land. They're getting close. They're approaching it. They're just on the other side of the Jordan. Um, but in uh, that promised land isn't just any old promised land. That promised land is like a garden. That's how Moses describes it. And uh, Deuteronomy 3, 20, uh, 12, 10 through, uh, 12, 10 through 11, um, he describes it in these um, sort of um, arboreal, um, just, just garden-like terms. And um, he describes it as a place where when he brings them into it, they will finally have rest. Okay? This, to the ancient Jewish mind, is going to scream the early chapters of Genesis. <laughs> God is bringing us, Yahweh is bringing us back into the garden again, okay? Um, so let's look at some of these verses. You can't see them, I'm sure. Let me see if this will help. If I can make it sharper. Yep, that's exactly what it is. All right, well, 
I, I can barely read it. I'm sorry. Um, so actually, I'm going to have to change it if I'm going to read any of these. But basically, um, I might just have to summarize it. Here we go. So in Deuteronomy 8, Moses describes the land as uh, having brooks of water, fountains and springs flowing out into the valleys and hills. I mean, the promised land is described as a place that even has water flowing out into the hills. Okay. Um, it's, it's supposed to be seen as a mountainous high area. And this is going to be very important when we go when we look at um, uh, Eden and the garden that's in Eden and, uh, next week and the following weeks. Eden was a mountain and the garden was on the mountain. Okay, uh, Vines and figs and pomegranates fill the land. Um, and when you're in it, you'll lack nothing, just like Adam and Eve lacked nothing when they were in the garden. Um, could say more about that. Um, there might be one thing you might say they lacked, um, but that was God ordained and was supposed to be given to them at his time, but they grasped it too early or tried to, and thus the curse. Deuteronomy 12, though, this just talks about how when he brings them in, uh, he's going to give them rest. Not only is he going to give them rest, but again, we're thinking of, uh, we don't have rest outside of God, right? And he's going to make his name dwell there in the promised land with them. To make his name dwell there just means he's going to live there with them. So he's going to do what God was doing in the garden with Adam. He's going to live with his people, okay? And they're going to have rest there, okay? Um, there is, I, I do have some things to say about whether or not Adam entered God's Sabbath rest. Um, we can talk about that after if you're interested in that um, conversation. I'm not going to try. This just points out some of the parallels between <laughs> Exodus and Numbers. And it somehow managed to be brighter in here so that you can't see this. But um, So along with, uh, along with um, d describing uh, the, these connections between Genesis and Deuteronomy and describing the land in Edenic terms, um, Deuteronomy acts as an epilogue. If you go read the first uh, to the, the Pentateuch, if you go read the first three chapters, it basically is Moses recounting, um, so summing up is sort of what an epilogue does, um, recounting what Yahweh, the relationship of Yahweh and Israel has been since they left Egypt around Genesis uh, 12 is the Passover. So basically since then, roughly a 40-year period, he's summarizing what's gone on. Uh, and lots of things they're grumbling, but mostly he's focusing on um, sort of this, the, the political um, winnings, so to speak, how he, they've conquered various kings um, through, throughout their time in the desert, and yet they still don't believe God that he can bring them into the promised land. Um, and, uh, and so the rest of Deuteronomy is just a series of speeches, probably all occurring on the same day. And here's something that's fascinating. If you look just to connect, but also contrast uh, Genesis and Deuteronomy, Genesis takes place over many thousands of years. But if you go look at Deuteronomy, it's, it probably took place on one day, if not the events, then at least maybe the speeches that were then read, were read to the people by Moses or given to the people by Moses. Many scholars believe Deuteronomy is set in one day. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that's interesting. Um, all right, so let's see here. Um, Deuteronomy and Genesis are, uh, reflect one another in this way, too, that um, you have uh, Genesis close with Jacob uh, in chapter 49. He's surrounded by his sons, who verse 28 of Genesis 49 tells us are the 
the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the 12 tribes of Israel come from Jacob, right? And so they're surrounded, um, they're surrounding him and he uh, blesses them and also tells them various ways that they're going to be stiff-necked and fail, okay? Fast forward to Deuteronomy. You have the same thing, chapter 33, that's the next to last, or, uh, second to last chapter. Um, you've got Moses gathering the 12 tribes around him, doing the same thing. He blesses them, but also tells them how they're going to be stiff-necked and what's going to happen basically in the future. Chapter 50 of Genesis, right after that, those blessings, that speech, um, Jacob dies. Um, chapter 34, Deuteronomy, after the blessings of speech, Moses dies. Like, these books are clearly supposed to reflect one another. Be these are bookends to the Pentateuch. That's why most scholars think there's something like this chiasm going on. You've got your prologue, you've got your epilogue. And then, like I said, you've got uh, Exodus and Numbers mirroring one another. They, they form their own sort of literary unit. But that leaves, um, where are we on time? That leaves us with Leviticus. Uh, 11.30. Sweet. Okay. Um, so... This is good. Uh, I'll finish a bit early today. So this has never happened in my life. Um, but this leaves us in a position to say something about the structure of Leviticus itself. Um, and it's also structured chiastically. Um, and so uh, basically what this is, this is taken from Michael Morales' book, um, uh, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Okay, that, that question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, I believe it uh, comes up in Psalm 24, if I'm not mistaken. That you, that is, there are lots of ways. I, I, so I'm one of these people who thinks like you can, you can pick a theme, like um, uh, trees. You could, you could tell the entire story of redemptive history by talking about trees. Humans uh, are placed in a tree place, a garden. They fall there. You see this sort of thing happen over and over again. You see it happen with with Noah in Genesis, you know, like seven through nine. He plants a garden. He's a new Adam figure. He uh, falls. He commits a sin. He gets drunk off, uh, off of uh, the wine that he produces from his garden, his, his trees, his vineyard. And he fails pr to protect his wife. And he allows his son, Ham, to come in and impregnate her, um, giving rise to Canaan, who he then curses. And they become enemies of the people of Israel. That's my take on what's happening in, in Genesis 9 there. Um, that's the sin of Ham. He sleeps with Noah's wife, and um, he uncovers Noah's nakedness by doing so. And here's the thing, cool thing about Leviticus. Leviticus 18 gives us the, the uh, language to interpret Genesis 9 properly, because if you go to Le read Leviticus 18, it tells us that to uncover, to uh, sleep with your, your mother or your father's wife is to uncover his nakedness because her nakedness just is his nakedness, right? And the same thing for your uncle and your, your neighbor's wife, and so on. The nakedness of your wife, your woman, is your nakedness, okay? Um, so you should be jealous, guard it, and she should too, right? And so uh, we, you can get all of this from the book of Genesis, like um, see all of this stuff played out in the book of Genesis. But, um, okay, so... Uh, You've got this chiastic structure to uh, the Pentateuch down here. This is Genesis, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus. And then with Leviticus, you have chapters 1 through 7, you have sanctuary law spoken of. And then the last four um, chapters, 23 through 27, again, sanctuary laws are spoken of. Like um, how Aaron and, you know, uh, so this is the sanctuary laws here would be things like how sacrifices are supposed to be um, performed. 
Um, 23 through 27, it'll talk about things like how Aaron is supposed to put oil in the lamp, what kind of oil, it's olive oil, when he's supposed to do it, and so on, okay? Um, then you move uh, inward more to chapters 8 through 10. And this 8 through 10 are fascinating. I love these chapters. The, the 8 through 10 are the ordination rite of the Levitical priests. And who, who remembers the conversation, the lengthy conversation we had about these chapters when I was teaching uh, the baptism class? Anyone remember some of this? Yeah, okay. Um, so that's what's going on there in terms of priestly laws. This is th these are the laws for how they're to be ordained. And I think this has everything to do with foreshadowing Christian baptism. And then um, 21 through 22, you're going to find interesting things about... Um, uh, priests not being able to serve if they have like a withered hand or some sort of skin disease or some, uh, you know, a leg that's too long or whatever, or too short, you know, that sort of thing. Um, th one of the cool things about this is that when you go to the fast forward of the New Testament, you see Jesus, he goes around and he heals all these people, various ailments. And these ailments just happen to be things we find would preclude someone from being a Levitical priest. So if you had to guess... What does Jesus healing these uh, priest-prohibiting ailments, what do you think that has to tell us about what Jesus is doing in the world with these people he's coming into contact with? If you had to guess. Exactly. He's making everybody a priest now. He's forming a new priesthood, a better priesthood. Um, I had an interesting conversation. How many people have heard of disability theology? No, it, I don't know a ton about it, but I had an interesting conversation with a guy, uh, I think it was last weekend, it's all running together for me, about this. Um, he had a disability, and he, he believes that he will be, uh, uh, that his, his disability, his ailment, uh, I, and I don't know all the respectful ways to talk about this sort of thing, but I mean, I, we got along, I think he knows that, you know, I think if he heard this, he wouldn't think I'm being a jerk. But I, I, his, his disability, his ailment, he believes that he'll have this in, the, in heaven, in the eschaton, when heaven comes to earth. Um, I, I tried to challenge him a little bit on that. We could talk about it. Doesn't, it's not really germane to what we're talking about now. But, we, um, but it's interesting. I think one of the ways that I, the way that I tried to push back on it was um, to talk about what's going on in the priesthood uh, in Leviticus. Um, so anyway, you get stuff like that in 21 through 22. Uh, personal laws, uh, 11 through 15, that matches up with uh, other personal laws about Sabbath keeping and feast keeping in 17 through 20. Um, 11 through 15 is going to be personal laws regarding like how to cleanse yourself after childbirth, um, uh, after sexual relations, things like that. Um, and then finally, though, we've run out of chapters. And so the chapters that correspond to one another, and this just leaves one chapter. It doesn't have a corresponding part, just like Leviticus in the broader context of the Pentateuch doesn't have a corresponding part. And so what is that chapter? Well, it's chapter 16, and that chapter covers the Day of Atonement. And so many people say, well, look, the Day of Atonement, all of this, the entire Pentateuch and Leviticus itself is building up to this, this point, this pinnacle here of the Day of Atonement. That's the central sort of theme. Um, I, those are the central ideas that Moses, as he's uh, written the Pentateuch and, and structured it, that he's wanting us to focus on. He's wanting us to focus on what's going on on the Day of Atonement. And man, it's interesting. Uh, does anyone have, so this is, you know, I'll just, time? Yeah, six minutes. Sweet. 
So this in, uh, in uh, Leviticus 16, you have um, uh, Aaron doing something different than uh, uh, with, with the sacrifice where he places leans. He, puts, he does the hand, some people call this the hand leaning right because of the Hebrew term. He's not just touching the ram or the, um, you know, the, the goat or the bull or whatever, but he's leaning both, both hands on it, on the sacrifice, not just one, as is done with the ascension offering and so on. He's leaning both. People say that has significance. And, um, and then a lot is cast. So um, they shoot craps, I guess, for, uh, that's a joke, um, for, uh, uh, for the, uh, this other goat. And this other goat, uh, the one that, that is not selected to be sacrificed, is sent into the desert. And who, who uh, is that goat said to be sent to? Who's in the desert? Was it Rebecca? Azazel. Anyone have any theory on who or what Azazel is? I mean, maybe. So we're going to talk about that. There, there are theories, but we'll talk about that. I, I'm inclined to think, yeah, probably some kind of demon. I'm also inclined to think, and this is just in part because it makes it easier for me as I teach this, to say, well, look, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is what it's saying about the goat, that it's exiled from the camp. It's carrying the sins away, and it's going to end up dying, you know. But uh, I'll try to say, try to have something interesting to say about um, who uh, Azazel might be or what it might be. Um, nonetheless, the point is that the Day of Atonement is, is, is significant because it, uh, it's when God deals decisively, temporarily, that seems like an oxymoron, but, um, but for a time until the next year with the sins of the people of Israel. But not just sin in the way we think about it. This is fascinating. I love this. Because we think of sin just being something that's in our hearts, it's in us, on us somehow. But sins accrue, pollution accrues, not just to you and you and you and me. It accrues to the tabernacle itself. It's like it's all over the walls. Now, one of the things I hope we'll get a chance to talk about, I intend to, is that the tabernacle is probably, it's probably okay to see it as some sort of incarnation of Yahweh himself, okay? Yahweh doesn't have a body, um, as far as we know. Um, I, there are reasons to think that Yahweh took on a body in the <coughs> Old Testament. Um, uh, there's a Jewish scholar, J Benjamin Summers, who's, he's got a book uh, called, I think it's called The Incarnations of God or something. I can't remember. Um, he's a critical biblical scholar. This is a Cambridge Press book. I mean, it's not, you know, um, we, have lots of we would have lots of disagreements with him on a lot of what he has to say, but some of what he has to say is pretty interesting. That, uh, and, you know, we see, we see stuff like this in, in the Old Testament where God seems to take on a body, and I want to suggest to you that the tabernacle is not di uh, really any different than this. God, the, the tabernacle is said to have a face. It has shoulders. It has sockets and joints that various parts fit into. Um, it has sides, the same word rib that's used, it's, or the same word that's often translated rib for uh, Adam's side being opened up in the garden and giving birth to Eve. Um, this, this is the same word that's used to describe the sides of the tabernacle. And so I think this is fascinating, where you've got this, this anatomical building, or this building described in anatomical terms, accruing sin, taking in the sins of the people, and I think probably it should be seen as the sins of the whole world, even the nations, because Israel was supposed to be a minister to the nations. Um, 
and uh, it's taking those on. What does this remind you of? If this is God himself taking in his body the sins of the people. What, do you, who's this, what does this make you think of as a Christian in the, who's read the New Testament? Yeah, he bore, his, he, he bore uh, our sins in his body on the tree, right? He became sin, right? He who knew no sin became sin. I think, I think these ideas uh, make the most sense uh, when, we under, when we understand what's happening in Leviticus. Um, well, I mean, think about it. It's not a theme, Christ taking on, it's taking sins into his body. It's not a theme that really, um, apart from, I think, what's happening with the tabernacle, like the only time you really get the sins going on to an animal, it's not with the regular sacrifices of the people or the daily sacrifices or any other sort of free will sacrifice that we bring. It's with the, the, uh, the goat that bears the sins of the people that doesn't even end up killed, but he ends up cast out, exiled. So we'll talk more about these things, but um, this is uh, this is a little bit about the, the Pentateuch, its structure. Leviticus is at the center of that. And if it's at the center of the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch is the key to understanding the rest of the Bible. So Leviticus is in some sense going to be the key to help us unlock what else is going, everything else is going on in the Bible. This is why a lot of scholars, they, they, they'll read Revelation and they're like, oh, wow, Revelation is full of images from Leviticus. So Leviticus has a far reach, and I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to see some of that over the next 12 weeks. And that's it. Anyone have any questions? Kevin. Yeah. You say the lamb? Yeah. 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 Well, the lamb, the lamb is present in the daily sacrifices of Israel, the morning and evening offerings, um, which are associated with uh, uh, the regular forgiveness of people and, and getting, you know, covering, atoning for their uncleanness and, and to some degree. Not, it's not really spoken of the way the Day of Atonement is, but. Um, uh, in terms of importance, I guess emphasis, but it is, uh, but it is there. It is regular, and it does some sort of uh, forgiving work for them. So it is. The lambs are there. It's just, yeah, you're right. Well, Th- this is one of. Interesting. I might have expected if I was looking at it and getting to the New Testament. Yeah. I might expect it to be the bull of God, not the lamb of God. Yeah. Sure. Sure. But they're seeing it regularly, and the lamb is associated with Passover too. So, um, and this is a pre-temple, uh, pre-tabernacle event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> in fact, um, in some ways, you, you can see how the lamb is um, sort of a central animal in the sense that um, I think there's, other, there's some symbolic, even political symbolic significance to bulls and goats and so on. Um, but we'll talk about that later. But I... I Maybe, but the, the, the lamb, you can see sort of um, why that would come up in the New Testament, that Jesus would be associated with this because um, this is the sacrifice by which they, they uh, are spared by God um, and really become God's sons because he has a claim on all of them. He saved their lives coming out of Egypt. And this is what he tells the, the people of Israel and the Levites, like, hey, uh, all of you, Israel is my son, right? Um, and uh, you're really my sons because I've, I've sacrificed for you these lambs, you know, in your stead, um, so to speak, that I've given you. 
and um, I'm adopting the Levites so that I don't take all of your sons and make them serve in my temple or tabernacle or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that we, we can, I think when you, when you see that, you see that the lamb is the sacrifice that brings them out of exile. Um, and these other sacrifices sort of build on that and sort of bring them, you might say, more fully into um, the realities of what it means to no longer be in exile. Um, so I think there's probably something like that going on. I think this, the lamb, maybe that's why the lamb shows up in the daily sacrifice. So anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. I have, I'm still, I'm thinking through all these things too. So anybody else? Okay, cool. Um, great guys. Thanks so much. See you next time. <laughs>